Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro-directors here at LSE, and it's, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the school for tonight's talk by Dr. Joel Brenner. Uh, Joel's going to speak for about 40 to 45 minutes, and then we'll move straight into Q&A. Uh, now's the time, please, to make sure that you've switched off your mobile phones or any other irritating device. Uh, it, it's a particular pleasure to host Joel tonight because, for one thing, uh, Joel is a returning alumnus of the school. He earned his PhD at LSE. Uh, Joel also earned a JD at Harvard University, and he spent most of his professional life working as a lawyer in the US, first of all, I think, as a federal prosecutor in Washington, D.C. Uh, Joel still lives in D.C., where he now specializes in privacy and data security issues for Cooley LLP. But I'm sure all of you that are here tonight will know that Joel is not just a lawyer. Uh, shortly after 9-11, Dr. Brenner joined the national security state in the US, first as the Inspector General of the National Security Agency, reporting to General Mike Hayden and his deputy Bill Black, and later, as Joel himself puts it in his book, running counterintelligence for the first director of national intelligence, who I think was John Negroponte at the time, whose wife also is an alum, alumna of the school. Uh, coming out of that nine-year experience is Joel's book, which I assume is heavily redacted, uh, America the Vulnerable, uh, on which he'll be drawing tonight for his talk, Digital Espionage, Crime and Warfare in the Global Glass House. Now, there's an amusing sort of side story here, which is that we had hoped that Joel would be able to sign copies of the book afterwards. Uh, but UK Customs hasn't allowed it into the country <laughs> at present. So Joel has a signed... A real badge of honor, <laughs> by the way. Uh, Joel has signed uh, some labels that can be put into the book <laughs> if you buy the book afterwards, and I believe the publisher's representative will be here to do that afterwards, and I'll give you details at the end of the, at the, end of the talk. Um, you know, a slightly more personal note, Joel says in his book that when he was at the NSA, he was, quote, one of the two people you do not want darkening your doorway. It's the sort of job, he says, where you couldn't worry too much about being liked. Now, I have to say that I was lucky enough to meet Joel in Washington last September for breakfast with my wife, and he was extremely agreeable company, as I'm sure he will be tonight. Indeed, he's one of a group of extraordinary alums that the school has in the D.C. area. Uh, we have young alums making their way in the IMF and the World Bank and the State Department, working for NGOs in the third sector and, of course, for private firms. And we have many senior alums in positions of power and influence in the banking industry, law, politics, and, of course, the U.S. government and the U.N. system, as well as at local universities, notably, I think, Georgetown. And one thing that we're really very keen to do more of at the school is to have our alums come back to LSE. Uh, to share with current students and, of course, with anybody from outside the school tonight some thoughts about their careers and life post-LSE. Uh, so we welcome you, Joel, uh, both as the author of America, The Vulnerable, and as one of those returning alums. We're delighted to have you back. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. This chair is very comfortable. I'm going to stay right here. The, the, um, I, I'm grateful for those 
remarks, um, Stuart. Uh, it, 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 it's really lovely to be invited back to the school after more years than I, I want to admit to. Um, I can hardly tell you physically how this place has changed since my day and how much lovelier it is um, now and, and how gratifying it is to see the growth of the school and the richness um, of the physical plant here. It, it, it really is, is fantastic. I, I, I had, I've often come to London, but I hadn't been around the school in quite a long time, and it just stuns me how lovely it is. Um, the school is an enormously important institution in the life of London, in the life of the United Kingdom, and in the life of so, of so many countries um, from which it has drawn students and faculty. And it's a great pleasure to come back. I also want to take a minute to thank Her Majesty's government and the Marshall Aid Commemoration Commission, because it was owing to them that I came to study here, and the generosity, their generosity, which affected my life profoundly, and, and for which I remain grateful. And I want to dedicate my remarks tonight in honor of Dr. William Letwin, um, now retired, uh, much retired and diminished, um, but who was my PhD supervisor while I was here. The only thing I would comment on before actually beginning my remarks to it is that this book is not heavily redacted. It is um, not redacted at all. And that's owing to the fact that um, in light of the positions that I had, I, I knew exactly where the line was of what I could and couldn't say. Um, and it was, having run counterintelligence policy, it was hardly in my line to go spilling secrets. Um, I, I can assure you, however, that I stood on that line and that it is, I think, the most candid book about electronic intelligence by an insider that, that is available now. So let me begin. How did the Chinese manage to remotely download up to 20 terabytes of information from the U.S. Defense Department, equal to about 20% of the data in the Library of Congress. And why don't we know exactly what they took? How did the specifications for the American president's helicopter, the avionics and the armor, end up in Tehran? And what has that got to do with the theft of Supreme Court Justice Breyer's personal information from his investment advisor? Why are identity thieves and other cyber criminals so hard to catch? Who broke into Google and stole their source code? How did Western energy, chemical, and automobile firms lose valuable intellectual property remotely? And how did some of our biggest multinational energy companies lose bid data on prospective oil fields right out of their own networks? Data that cost tens of millions of of dollars, uh, pounds, to develop. Your family's difficulties with electronic privacy, the electronic theft of cutting edge technology from the companies that create jobs and wealth, and our government's loss of secrets are more alike than you know. The public on both sides of the Atlantic are meanwhile under the impression that privacy has gone down the tubes while secrecy has gone through the roof. This is a deeply flawed understanding of what's happening. 
Privacy is the person's, what secrecy is the government's and organization's. And both have gone down the tubes. And it has happened for the same set of technological and cultural reasons. For good and for ill, we all of us, you, your children, your parents, your government alike, create, store, and communicate information using the same highly imperfect commercial hardware and software and the same commercial networks. And those networks are porous, insecure, and vulnerable. As for the technical reasons, the roots of the internet go back to the late 1960s in the United States. It was created as a powerful tool for collaboration among far-flung scientists in government and universities around our country. And as its inventors will ruefully tell you, it was created with no security layer built into it at all. Not that they didn't think about it, they did. They, 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 they'll tell you they did. They just didn't think, in light of the purposes for which it was created, that it was necessary. Until 1992, it was against the law in the United States, which in this context was the only country that then mattered, against the law to use the internet for commercial purposes. This is a stunning fact. 20 years ago, it was against the law to use the internet for commercial purposes. Today, um, there's nothing we don't do that's not connected to the internet. Ten years ago, indeed, what were you doing if you were doing anything all, all in the Buying a song? Buying a book? And hoping your bank account wasn't going to be emptied out? You, you know, you dip one dipped one's toe into that water ten years ago. That's what we were all doing. And in the meantime, your bank's operations, the school's operations, the government's operations, Everything has been connected to this extraordinarily wonderful capability with no security layer in it. Indeed, the net could be said to be a masquerade ball. And I would put it to you that it's the only area of social life in which because of the fundamental abil ability to spoof identity so easily, that we have a, a radical disjunction between behavior and accountability for electronic behavior. The only area of our social life. I mean, we expect a certain degree of liberty, but under order. When you go into Lincoln's and Fields across the street, you want to be let alone, but not if you assault somebody. You drive on the highway, you want to be able to go where you want, but you don't expect the road signs to be misleading intentionally. You don't expect to be stopped by the police unless you break the law. The internet doesn't work that way. On the cultural side, we deeply distrust secrecy. In, in, in all democracies, we distrust secrecy. Because secrecy creates power. Indeed, it is a form of power. And we can therefore say, paraphrasing Acton, that secrecy corrupts and absolute secrecy corrupts absolutely. But secrecy is not a different thing than privacy. It's the same thing asserted by different actors, and that is the right to keep other people from knowing things. With these principles in mind, and believing that the only way to test one's principles is to put them to a real test, in 2002, I descended 
into the belly of the great beast, spending most of the last decade in American intelligence, in the equivalent of the civil service, in a non-political position, nevertheless in a series of extraordinary positions, during a fascinating, difficult, and ultimately highly controversial period, first as the Inspector General of NSA, the National Security Agency, and as then as the Chief of U.S. Counterintelligence. Counterintelligence is about keeping track of what other intelligence services are doing to you. Traditionally, it was the spy versus spy game, and that hasn't gone away. It, it never goes away. But electronic networks have complicated it enormously because they've increased by orders of magnitude the amount of information that can be stolen and the ways in which it can be done. I saw plenty of the old-fashioned stuff. But I also saw the dramatic rise of a new kind of spying that exploits the ubiquitous connectivity that we've all come to love so well and to depend on. The problems that I saw were really intense. In the first place, 10 years ago, counterintelligence had not progressed beyond counterespionage. That's mole hunting. And as I say, that problem doesn't go away. But although we've begun to call it by this wider name, counterintelligence, it hadn't, it hadn't progressed beyond counterespionage except in name. And this was true in this country as well as in the United States. When I got there in 2006, my office in counterintelligence was neither organized nor resourced to deal with this new reality. Six years ago. Meanwhile, we've been digitizing information and connecting systems at breakneck speed, which put almost everything at risk. To be blunt, Electronic thieves were stripping us blind. I'm not talking about pirating DVDs and movies and somebody ripping off your driver's license number. That stuff's bad enough. I'm talking about technologies that cost billions of dollars to develop being bled out of our laboratories remotely or slipping out after hours on thumb drives, that's USB sticks, walking onto airplanes bound for foreign ports and re-entering the country as finished products. In effect, we're buying back our own technology. Engineering designs, energy data, advanced battery and braking technologies, <coughs> high-speed train technologies, and many other kinds of IP have been stolen this way, IP, intellectual property. None of this is defense-related, and it contributes to a tidal flow of technology from west to east that threatens this prosperity of you and your children and your grandchildren. Meanwhile, on the defense side, we've lost strategically sensitive data about aircraft and ship design, radars, and other technologies that would in wartime cost many lives. The US Navy, for example, spent about $5 billion to develop a quiet electric drive for its submarines and ships, and the Chinese stole it. Now, OK, I've, I've brought it up again. China. So let me, let me talk for a minute about China because I, I think that I want to make it very clear that engaging in a jingoistic China bashing is not only not my agenda, it ought not be yours. Um, what's going on with China is extremely complex. Let me just say a little bit about my view on that so I'm not misunderstood. For the last thousand years, China was the leading 
the largest economy in the world except for the last two centuries, coinciding largely with our Industrial Revolution and the birth of the American Republic. We experienced an Industrial Revolution. They didn't. We also imposed on them in extraordinary ways. The British East India Company was the world's largest and, and perfectly vertically integrated opium cartel, and its enforcement arm was the Royal Navy. The Chinese didn't want the British importing opium, which was the one product they were willing to pay cash for as opposed to barter for. And, and, and the British Navy forced them to open their ports. And that led to, as I think you all know this, an extraordinary series of concessions along the, the Chinese coast by which Britain and then France and then Germany and ultimately also as a latecomer of the United States gained extraordinary concessions and, and, and the right to apply their own law to their own nationals' behavior in China. And we bled them. The Chinese know this in their bones. They haven't forgotten it. They're not going to forget it. There's no reason they should forget it. It was a humiliation that they feel deeply. They will rise now. They will rise and allowing them to arise and become integrated in, in, in the international legal order is a major strategic goal of my government and yours, and must be. It is an extremely complex relationship. China has also lifted more tens of millions of people out of poverty and in a shorter period of time than any other society in history. This has come at enormous cost in personal liberty, but it is nevertheless an achievement which not to, re not to respect that achievement would really be churlish. Nevertheless, I must speak frankly to you about what is happening. During my tenure in government, I saw two changes in espionage. Now, I suppose when somebody talks about changes in espionage, you could sort of crinkle your nose and scratch your head. I mean, espionage is very old business, right? I mean, Joshua sent spies into Canaan. Huh? Moses did it before Joshua. He wasn't the first guy. It's a very old business. If it's not the oldest business in the oldest profession in the world, it's the second oldest profession in the world. And, and the two often go together. <laughs> um, nevertheless, there have been, while I was serving in government, some really quite dramatic changes in, in intelligence. First, it became, because of the electronic connectivity, it, it went from being just a, a, a retail business to a wholesale business. I mean, if you can penetrate somebody else's electronic networks from thousands of miles away in another country to suck out information from it, maybe you don't need the traditional kind of spy. Or maybe the spy you want isn't necessarily the, the personal private secretary to the foreign secretary. Maybe it's the chief information security officer uh, down in the bowels of the building who, who can make sure certain things happen or don't happen that would facilitate your remote penetrations. In terms of sheer volume for this kind of, of penetration, the Chinese are in a class by themselves. 
And much of it is state-sponsored, especially by the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. But China also relies on, network, on a network of cutouts at various distance from official control. A cutout sort of shell, somebody operating it at a distance from the government. Bear in mind also that in China, the distinction between public and private is often not useful because the state controls so much of the economy. We have, we have privatized ministries, for example. How, how, how do we regard that when we're talking about the public-private dichotomy? That dichotomy isn't very useful in understanding the way China really works. Russia is also in this game, big time. And we know this not only from observing their behavior, but also from official admissions, including from Putin, that the Russian intelligence services operate in aid of the Russian economy. Iran is also in this business, though, in a much narrower way. Their interest, as you might imagine, is in nuclear technology. The second great change in the last decade, maybe 13 or 14 years, has been in targeting. Espionage has been historically a politico-military business. There have been some exceptions, and there's some kinds of, of economic advances that have had profound military implications, like cannon technology, for example, that the, that, that the, that the, uh, the Turks really wanted to steal from the Europeans uh, in the 17th century and eventually did, or bought, I should say. But that's not purely economic espionage. What we're seeing now is purely economic espionage, and there's a tidal wave of it, stuff having nothing to do with state secrets or national defense. And this is a qualitative change. And if we want to understand it, we need to go back to a very interesting period not so long ago, between 1989 and 1991. Two things happened in that period. One of them was the collapse of the Soviet Union. One of the most powerful empires in history with an enormously powerful military collapsed without a shot being fired. The Chinese and lots of every, everybody else really sat up and took notice of this. And one of the things they realized was that it went bankrupt. It rotted from within. This wasn't just a question of Maggie Thatcher and Ronald Reagan ratcheting up the defense expenditures, though that was surely a significant aspect of it. But for whatever you think the reason was, they went economically bankrupt. And the Chinese began, and everyone else understood, that if you cannot compete with the United States, in particular the West in general, economically, you cannot compete with the United States militarily or geopolitically either. Now, a very short time later, about the same time, in, on January 17, 1991, the uh, ground war started in Iraq, the first Gulf War. Of course, everybody knew that the NATO had enormous air superiority, but it was generally thought the ground war was going to be a much closer fought battle. The Iraqis were, had a well-trained army, they had big armor cores, and they had the latest Chinese armor. Does anybody remember how long that battle lasted? 100 hours. And the Iraqi army was utterly destroyed. We took over their networks so that Iraqi commanders knew when they 
got onto their computers, they were not talking to Saddam's henchmen anymore. They were talking to an American military commander who owned their networks. And we told them where to park their stuff. And if they wanted to live, to walk away. And they parked their stuff. And we blew it up. And we did it in 100 hours. And the Chinese really sat up then. Because their model of war at that point was still Mao's army, mass peasants, not necessarily with the latest weapon, port weaponry pouring over the Yalu River and driving MacArthur, MacArthur back south. And they realized that was never, ever going to happen again. Never. And if the Americans and their allies could do that, what they did to the Iraqis, why couldn't they do it to the PLA? Not only that, but they saw a couple of things. One was an, uh, our battle commanders, yours and ours, had intelligence that came out of the sky that went through remote ground stations that the Chinese saw in Australia and places like that, and in a matter of, of a microseconds were on their screen in the Iraqi desert. And they said, who else but the Americans would or could spend $60 billion to liberate another country halfway around the world? So they drew some lessons from this. One was, again, reinforcing the lesson of the collapse of the Soviet Union, that if you cannot compete with the West economically, you cannot compete in any other way either. And secondly, it was going to take them generations before they could think about a military confrontation with the United States. But in the meanwhile, if you could get into and corrupt this extraordinary command and control network, you could really play havoc with the Yanks. And so these lessons really begin to appear in Chinese strategic writing in the, it, at about this time. And this is what drives Chinese and Russian strategy in terms of cyber espionage. Now, at this point, I'm often asked, hey, you, you know, Brenner, you, you guys do this too. In fact, you're the most capable in terms of offensive electronic espionage in the world, and, and you're being a hypocrite. Let's talk about what it means when you say you do it too. Of course, the United States is, along with your country and a small group of others, one of the highly capable nation states um, in terms of their our ability to undertake cyber operations. The United States, the United Kingdom, and every country reserves to itself the right to engage in political military espionage. Espionage is not a line of work that operates according to the golden rule, which doesn't affect the truth of what I'm saying. That in addition to the old kind of espionage, we now have to defend ourselves against a very different kind of spying that's cheaper and less risky and can be done in volume. But in response to the question, don't we also do it, it again depends on what the it is. And if the, if the it is economic espionage, espionage in aid of one's economic sector, the answer is no. And there are three reasons why the answer is no. The first is that it would be inconsistent with 
my country and your country's strategic goal of enhancing the international legal regime that protects intellectual property. This is a strategic goal. Compromising that strategic goal for short-run tactical advantages of stealing somebody else's intellectual property is not intelligent. We therefore don't do it. But even if you were going to look at this really cynically, forget that, maybe they think they can get away with it, why don't they do it? You then ask yourself, what are we going to steal? Russia, in spite of an extraordinarily rich culture and an amazingly well-educated population, has never produced a commercially viable computer chip. This is not a country with a lot of advanced technology. China? Certainly not. They want to catch up. What are we going to steal over there? So even if you were a cynic about this, in terms of, you know, th this isn't 1950 anymore when the only country on the planet that was still, st industrial country that was still standing with advanced technology was the United States. That, 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 those days are done. And, and we're better that, off that they're done. But the United States is still the country with the most IP to steal, followed by Western Europe. We're not going to go to China to steal technology. Thirdly, our intelligence services are hard-pressed to fulfill their current duties. There isn't the money to begin to, to put it in the, sake, in, in the service of the private sector. Now, I don't expect everybody to believe what I'm saying. You know, I'm, no, I'm, I'm not a fool about that. But I can tell you, this is, this is what I know, and these are the reasons why it's true, and you, you have not seen, nobody's come up with any examples of the United States or Britain putting their intelligence services in the service of the private sector, which is what we are dealing with with the Chinese and the Russians right now. Another strategic development that occurred during my tour in government was the almost complete convergence of information security and operational security. Now, I don't, I don't know if the, the, that vocabulary has penetrated into the academy very far. So information security is, you know, protecting information, whether it, personal information, it's an aspect of privacy. Uh, corporately, it's company-wise, it's, it's a way of protecting um, trade secrets and intellectual property. At the national level, it's protecting state secrets. Operational security means physical security and the ability to keep on running the thing, whether it's a school or a factory. And again, if you can penetrate the network remotely from the comfort of your, um, your room, your bedroom or your office in Shenzhen or Shanghai or somewhere else, in order to suck information out of it, you can also penetrate a network to corrupt the information that's in it or to shut it down. And as we talked, I talked, and I saw a lot of heads nodding earlier on this evening, everything we do now is connected to those computer closets. The days when there were the propeller heads went into the computer closet and there were tink guys tinkering around with you know, racks of stuff and nobody else knew what they were doing and it didn't really affect much except the, you know, whatever the few things one was doing on a computer. Those days are finished. We run everything on our networks now. 
from the ventilation uh, and security system in this wonderful building to the operation of trains on the London Underground to the matching and clearing systems on the other LSC. They really had a nerve, I think. You know? They have a nerve. Uh, you know, the stock exchange, all that stuff is, is electronic now. The days when guys were writing stuff on paper slips and matching trades, that's, that's finished. Air traffic control over Heathrow and Gatwick, the governance of the electricity grid, controls over offshore drilling rigs in the North Sea and the Gulf of Mexico, local water treatment plants, all this stuff goes back to that computer closet now. Many of these systems are really shockingly vulnerable, as are the systems of many well-known companies that ought to know better. Now, to illustrate a point, let me read a very brief snippet from a chapter of my book called Dancing in the Dark. The book's called America the Vulnerable, Inside the New Threat Matrix of Digital Espionage, Crime, and Warfare. This chapter is about electricity. On March 4, 2007, an electricity generator from the Alaska grid began to vibrate, slowly at first, then faster and faster, until the delicately balanced turbines in the massive generator rumbled, shook furiously, and blew apart. And then the generator just shut down, hissing and belching smoke from its burned-out coupling. Explosives didn't destroy this hulk of equipment, though you might have thought so from the look of it, nor was it employee sabotage. The saboteurs were outsiders miles away, and their tools were a keyboard and a mouse. They evaded firewalls, took over controls, and opened and closed breakers at will, all the while manipulating the operator's screen to make it appear that nothing untoward was happening. Fortunately, the generator had been removed from Alaska and connected elsewhere so that blowing it up would not wreak havoc on our grid. It was a secret experiment carried out by some smart guys at the Idaho National Laboratory. They reportedly called their project Aurora, having nothing to do, by the way, with uh, the uh, 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 Chinese attacks on Google, which were also called Aurora. This was before that, no relation. And they blew the turbines apart by hacking into the digital devices that regulated power on the grid. When they got into the system, they simply instructed it to make rapid changes in the electricity cycles that powered the equipment, fast, slow, fast, slow. And then they waited just a second or two for the thing to blow up, which it did. Ladies and gentlemen, it's really time we began to take these vulnerabilities seriously. Reproducing this kind of operation in real life would not be simple, but it can be done, especially with the assistance of an insider or even with enough persistence and expertise. But I'm not here to tell you that we're in the middle of a cyber war. I want to talk about war talk and cyber war for a minute, because it's all over the newspapers. And, and is, although, if, if you read my book, and I hope you will, um, even though I discuss cyber war in it, I, 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 every interview it comes out you know, about cyber war. I'm not really, I'm talking, I want to be much more subtle and, and get you to think more subtly about this. The war talk really isn't useful. If we were really in some kind of war, we would know it, 
and neither the activities nor the results would be exclusively electronic. Maybe that's too subtle a way of saying they'd be hell. Things would blow up. People would be killed. But the situation is nevertheless dangerous. You know, we have a real problem of getting the public to understand when things are really serious and important and we need to pay attention to them without talking about war. And the situation becomes more so as the capabilities of nation states and non-state actors, including transnational terrorist organizations and criminal businesses, continue to converge. It's a very important point, the convergence of expertise. Things that only states could do earlier in our lifetime, now many non-state actors can do. Governments, businesses, and private accounts are under constant attack in a certain sense. And this is where this word attack is where a lot of the confusion comes from. Indeed, there's a sense in which we are being attacked constantly. Now what do I mean that we're not at war but we're being attacked? Let me, let me unpack these words because a lot of the argument on this subject is about words and not about things. And there's, enough, there's enough disagreement about things. We ought to, let's, let's find out where the disagreements are and clear up the vocabulary. The word attack is often used to describe everything from uh, um, a probe of a system to a penetration in order to steal information from a system, whether it's your Facebook account or or the school's grades, or you know Unilever. I, I don't mean to pick a name. Any company's um, um, you know, IP. Onwards to an attempt to actually destroy the information on the system, or physically destroy the system itself, which can be done electronically. I mean, we, we, you can fry a computer with electronically, just the way you can fry a diesel electric generator. Calling a probe an attack is really a stretch. And, and sometimes you see these, big, these figures, you know, there have been 100 million attacks on some system. They, they, they're usually talking about probes. But lots of people speak plausibly in terms of espionage attacks. In the cyber operations business, however, that's called an exploitation. An attack is reserved for an operation that really causes damage. Most of the time, when you hear people talk about constant attacks, they mean our networks are being exploited. This is really serious, but it ain't war. In fact, I would say that this is happening with an intensity that is really hard to exaggerate. The, the information security officers of every major company now in the West, if, if they are at all capable, are seeing attacks 24 hours a day on information systems. But this is not an attack in the more rigorous sense that we mean when we talk about the laws of armed conflict, or sometimes just known as the law of war. Let me still qualify that. <clears throat> not long ago, the difference between espionage and a military attack was unambiguous. That's not true anymore. <clears throat> Let's say we find an intruder in the electric grid. What's he doing there? Looking around for information? What, about, about what? You know, your electric bill? That's not of great interest to very many people, or mine. Looking around in order to understand how to attack it later, or actually planting a logic bomb, which is a weapon in the technical sense, that could be triggered later on. 
If so, if the latter, that could be regarded as an act of war, but we are highly unlikely to find that logic bomb. Highly unlikely. Because we do not know how to vet really complicated computer chips or millions of lines of code to find these things. We know how to vet code and devices to prove that they will do the things they're supposed to do, but we don't know how to test code to see that a device won't do something that it's not supposed to do and that we don't want it to do under certain conditions. This is a basic problem in computer science right now. It's on a par with the attribution problem, frankly. So we're unlikely to find that code. That's why the presence of intruders in systems that control critical infrastructure can't be dismissed as mere espionage. Those intrusions are happening, and they're dangerous. Now, as to cyber war, we've heard the term used to cover all manner of different circumstances. For example, the intense propaganda battle on the internet during the Kosovo conflict has been described as cyber war. It wasn't. It was an intense propaganda battle on the internet. Richard Clark, whom I know and respect, has described a kind of strategic st cyber war that I think is not going to happen. Not going to happen. But even Clark links that kind of cyber attack to traditional armed conflict. The idea that somehow nation states are going to conduct destructive operations exclusively in cyberspace is science fiction. The idea that all the lights are going to go out in the United States or the United Kingdom is, is science fiction. Which isn't to say that the grid couldn't be taken out in San Diego or Seattle, which some of you may recognize as the two principal Pacific ports of the United States Navy or in New York, or regionally. It has happened by accident. And what has happened by accident can be made to happen on purpose. In between these extremes, however, we've seen cyber operations that have had real effects on nations. In Estonia, for example, we saw the Russians mount strenuous DDoS attacks. That's distributed denial of service attacks. That's, that's just a flood of stuff that overwhelms the system so that it can't operate. And they, those were attacks on the Estonian communications and, and financial sectors. They were an eye-opener. But DDoS attacks are actually fairly primitive. The Estonians said they were being attacked and wanted to invoke the famous Article 5 of NATO, which says that an attack on one NATO member is an attack on all of them. NATO looked over that brink and said, no. Can you imagine if we had declared that to be an act, a DDoS attack to be an act of war? We, we would really... The consequences of that would be, would be appalling. We know how to fend off those attacks, but they'll almost certainly be part of the opening stages of future armed conflicts because they cause confusion and delay. That's what happened in Georgia when the Russians moved in and used DDoS attacks very effectively to keep the Georgian leadership from understanding what was going on in their own small country. And then there was Stuxnet. Everybody know what Stuxnet was? Stuxnet was the operation conducted by, I don't really know who, 
I don't. I don't. Um, an operation conducted electronically to destroy a large number of centrifuges that were enriching uranium, uranium in Iran. And the way that was done was, I mean, it was a brilliant operation that used not one, two, or three, but four zero-day attacks, previously unknown vulnerabilities in, in Microsoft operating systems, um, combined with what must have been real insider knowledge of the physical plan. But that, those systems were air-gapped. You couldn't get to them by the Internet. So there had to be some insider. I mean, this was a real... This was a, a, a brilliant job that could only have been done by one or more intelligence service. Um, no, I don't mean that could, there was only one intelligence service that could have been that could have done it. I mean that it had to have been done by a, by a nation state. You, you can guess who you want. I don't. Um, I don't. Um, the the effect was physical. I'll, we don't know just how long the Iranian system of enriching uranium was delayed by this, but it was certainly delayed and, and havoc was wreaked on it for some period of time. This was an attack in the strict sense of the word. And we're going to see more of that because even though a nation state, only a nation state's intelligence services could have pulled that off, the blueprint for it is now out there. And the electricity grids in many places, unlike the Iranian centrifuges, are hooked up to the internet. It didn't take somebody with a thumb drive sneaking it in there to, be, to defeat the air gap to get into that system. We're going to see more of these. It's, 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 once this kind of operation gets out there and is known, they don't, they're like mice. They don't come one at a time. You, know, you see one of them, there are going to be more of them. As for U.S. doctrine in cyber war, a few months ago the Pentagon confirmed what most of us thought all along, that the United States would regard it as an act of war, any cyber attack that had physical consequences like that caused by a kinetic attack. You know, kinetic is, is what the military guys use when they mean heat blast and fragmentation. You know, it's stuff blown up. And that we'd reserve the right to respond in any way, saw, way we saw fit, any time we saw fit, and not necessarily restricted to an attack in kind. This surprised no one. This surprised no one. Here's the point of all this. The world we live in now doesn't divide neatly into war and peace. With China in particular, we're in a deeply challenging relationship with enormous advantages for both sides. This is nothing like the Cold War when there was really an iron curtain. We didn't trade with them, they didn't trade with us, we didn't travel, they don't travel here. You, 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 you tell a Western, a British businessman that China's hostile territory when he's making 50% on his direct investment, he'll think you're crazy. At the same time, when that businessman goes over there, his electronics are being turned inside out. So there's a sense in which it's a wonderful place to do business and a sense in which it's a dangerous place to do business. Not one or the other, both at the same time. This relationship with China is rife with conflict, and right now we're in a period of strenuous conflict on networks with China as they plunder our networks and your networks for intellectual property. We are, as I said, in a period between war and peace. 
which Chinese political thought is far better equipped to understand than our own. In the West, particularly but not exclusively in the United States, we think of war and peace as an on-off toggle switch. We're either sitting around the campfire with our arms around each other singing songs, this is, everybody's trading, everybody's happy, everybody's honest with each other. That's peace, and war is, is shooting. This is not what nation-state relations are really like. And the, the, the Chinese know better. And that is another reason to start, to, I think, to talk about a certain kind of intense struggle, but not to engage in war talk. On this really cheerful note, let me conclude with an equally cheerful observation about secrecy and security, and by implication, privacy. Neither my government nor yours, nor any company you know of, can protect its own networks. This is not merely from a lack of will, though we've suffered from that too. The internet, as it is now engineered, cannot be protected with any high degree of security, though most companies could do a great deal better than they do. Moreover, the business of information security cannot keep up with the explosion of attack surfaces. That is, the nodes into which you can get in, through which you can get into the internet. And pretty soon, that, those nodes are going to include your fridge and your toaster and your furnace. Because all these things are going to be IP addressable pretty soon, right? You talk about smart grid, you know, you want the smart grid on your furnace? That means that I was kidding around with General Hayden uh, last year and saying, you know, the next cyber attack is going to be launching the coffee maker in room, you know, 3214 of a high-rise hotel in Shanghai or New York. I mean, um, we can't keep, the, the, the surfaces through which you can get into this system are, are multiplying geometrically. Nor can we keep up with the rising flood of information. And since this is the institution that taught me that it was important to count things, I think I've got to come up with at least one figure here, Stuart. So I'm going to quote Dan Gear of InQtel in California, who, who recently wrote to me as follows. In 1986, you could fill the world's total storage using the world's total bandwidth in two days. Today, it would take 112 days. If you, if you do the calculation, that's an almost perfectly exponential curve. You know, at the beginning of Lytton Strachey's Eminent Victorians, which if you haven't read, you really should. It's a delicious book. He says that the history of the 19th century will never be written. Why? Because he said we know too much about it. He had no idea what an information glut really looked like. We can't keep up with it. Neither access controls nor the training of security specialists, which are linear in their growth, can possibly keep up with this curve. Inevitably, cybersecurity will therefore become more and more automated, but in the process, also less fine-grained. And it will continue to be plagued by human failure. Y you know, the, the geeky guys say, that the weakest link in any system is not the silicon-based unit on the desk, it's the carbon-based unit in the chair. 
or put it differently, it's the last, it's the 18 inches between you and the keyboard, you and the screen. In short, the prospect for cybersecurity is not good. This is bad news for information security and therefore bad news for both secrecy and privacy. It's an exaggeration to say that we're living in a post-privacy or post-secrecy world, but the phrases really do illuminate our predicament. Let's say that instead that transparency has become a feature of our lives at all levels, personally, corporate, and governmental. We live in a glass house, all of us. As I say in chapter one of my book, we are, in many respects, electronically naked. This is disconcerting. I don't recommend it. I don't like it. I'm describing what I see. I'm not advocating here. I'm describing what I see. And frankly, I don't think there's a whole lot we can do about it. The trends themselves are inexorable, and legislation doesn't much affect them. If this is an area of great interest to you, I recommend a book by Lawrence Lessig that came out in 1999 called Code, in which he made the argument, which I think is unimpeachably correct, that the code that really matters isn't the United States Code or the Napoleonic Code or any other kind of legal code. It's the code in the device that determines what can and can't be done and will and therefore what will and won't be done. The electronic systems that have made us vulnerable have also brought us fabulous increases in, in productivity and an enormous amount of human pleasure. And we're not going to throw them away. We're not going to do without them. Nobody proposes abandoning them or restricting them. Information about ourselves is out there because for the most part we've put it out there. Because we've embraced this, this world that we live in. You want to go over the, uh, a bridge, you're going to stand in line and pay the toll or you're going to zip through because you, in a way that leaves an electronic footprint of where you've traveled. You go into the underground, you're being photographed. Okay. Go into the car park, you're being photographed. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's, you, you buy something online and you know, now people buy coffee with a credit card, right? All these things leave electronic footprints, not only of where you've been and what you've bought, but where you are now. And if you tell people, ask people, gee, you want to be located like that? They say, no. And they say, well, didn't you just buy a, a smartphone for your 11-year-old so you know where she was all the time? Well, yeah. And, and don't you want the GPS in your car and on, on, your, on the gizmo you carry around in your pocket? Well, sure. See, th this, these answers don't compute. The public hasn't really fully absorbed the contradictions in, in what we want and don't want. Information about company secrets and state secrets is also networked. Why? Because far-flung employees have to collaborate to deal with it. We are in a glass house. I can illuminate but not resolve this dilemma for you this evening. Like all serious problems, it may eventually go out of date, but it cannot be solved, and managing it will challenge us for years to come. Thank you all. Take questions.
Joel, very candid and very engaging. Uh, we're going to take questions one by one. Uh, if you just wait for a microphone to come to you and perhaps say who you are, please, as well. There's a gentleman at the back as well. And then down here. Mr. Brennan, thanks, thanks very much for your talk. Um, a comment and a question. To what extent do you feel the current state of cybersecurity constitutes market failure? So to what extent does this represent <clears throat> a failure by the private sector to um, build products, services that protect the public good more than they detract from the public good? So obviously this leads into a regulation and governance question. The other question as well is, you talked quite a bit about espionage and it's true that on a, on a governmental level, um, it's quite a severe issue and the private sector doesn't hold out much hope when they face a nation state adversary. But stealing the copy to make one, to make a jet engine helps you to make the first one. It doesn't help you to make the next 10,000. And that's something that you could, I mean, I think there's an argument to be made in the Chinese system. Convincing a supply chain to yield reliable data, convincing employees to pass up bad news up the hierarchy is something difficult. So you're looking at something like a Six Sigma methodology. So the espionage tells you how to make the first copy, but it doesn't really tell you how to make the next 10,000. These are two really good questions. Let me, let me unpack them a little bit and address them. Um, I've been thinking for some years about why the market hasn't responded better to, um, to the secure, what I think is a security deficit. And I discuss it to some length in my book. The things that drive change in market economies, in the United States in particular, are liability, I should say market opportunity, and liability. The tax law has a, also is a big driver. But looking at the markets, let's just stick with liability for a minute. And, and um, with mar market, the, the public has, buys on price. The public has not understood its vulnerability very well and has, I, I think, not been willing to spend money on security, even though it's very offended and, and I think to some degree distressed by the danger of, 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 in, of, ha of being hacked and of, of information theft, credit card fraud, and so on. But the public also has no way of measuring what's secure and what's insecure. Everything is sold as either the security is not mentioned, people look at, they want connectivity. You look at the advertisements, you just don't see much said about security. It's speed, it's got bells and whistles and so on, but security plays very little role in advertising. And advertisers are smart. They understand what the public really wants. When that changes, pub, you know, that, that'll, that'll change. But right now, if, the pub, if you want to buy on um, if you're willing to spend money on security and you want to buy a gizmo, is the blue gizmo more secure than the red gizmo? How do you know? Unless you're really a specialist in the area, you don't. And so the comparison for even an educated shopper is really a big problem right now. That's one reason we haven't seen a market do better. Another reason has to do with the enforceability of shrink wrap contracts and, and click-through agreements. Now, I won't mention the name of the company since it's one of my law firm's clients, but there's a really famous um, company that, um, that sells music and other stuff. 
And, um, and, and, and this is true of all the big companies like this. You want to buy one, you get um, a pop-up menu that says, here's our privacy policy, here are the terms of, or in this case, here are the terms of agreement. How long is that thing? 67 pages for your company. Well, <laughs> I thought it was 64, but you know, it, it's, nobody clicks through 60 pages. Hardly anybody reads one page. So there's an I agree button on page one. Okay? It's enforceable. Um, we don't have standards. Um, and, and you know, I'm not here to suggest, you get the legislatures involved in this and you're really asking for trouble because they usually foul it up. And if they put a concrete standard in, in legislation, it's usually behind, they're, they're, the lawyers and the legislators are regulating the way they think the network worked and it's actually, what they're dealing with is the way they, the network, they thought it used to work 15 years ago. And so getting legislative standards is, is a little risky and asking for trouble. But yeah, the market has failed. I think the market has failed. Uh, and is that going to change? Um, maybe. There's some, I do talk at length about uh, how ISPs, the service providers, could, I think, play a bigger role. Having every node be responsible for security doesn't work. You, you've got to look for the, for the bottlenecks and the funnels and, the, and through which all this traffic goes. And therefore, I look to the ISPs. As for espionage, did I answer that first question adequately? Okay. Um, also, you know, when I first started thinking about this, when I got the counterintelligence job, actually before that, I went and talked to some major insurers uh, and I asked, why don't, doesn't insurance drive this market more? Because usually, you know, you, you, if you don't get in accidents, you get a better rate on automobile insurance, right? If you haven't any fires in your house and you, you put in smoke alarms, you get a better rate on fire insurance. Why don't the insurers pay a bigger role here? One of the things I found out was that around 2000, all the big underwriters realized that their valuable papers policies were unwittingly covering um, uh, data breaches, cyber data breaches. And they recoiled in horror and they quickly wrote an exclusion. And then they started creating a new product. But hardly anybody buys it. The big guys self-insure, which is to say they go naked, they can, they can tolerate the risk. The small guys can't afford it and aren't thinking about it. And so you're dealing with just the middle of the market in, in, in right. So right now insurance hasn't played a big role either. Maybe that's, I'm starting to see a little bit of change in that area, um, but, not, but not a lot. All right, you're, the second, the questioner's second point was, you know, just because you steal a formula, for example, doesn't mean you know how to, how to make the gizmo. A lot of you know, if you take 10 different cooks, 10 different bakers, and you give all of them this identical recipe for a cake, you're going to get 10 really different cakes. The chances of any two of them being really alike, unless they've been trained together in that kitchen, aren't very good. The same thing is true whether you're making tires or anything else that comes out of a factory. Nevertheless, there are many cases in which 
the knowledge, there really is a piece of knowledge that keeps one guy from competing with another guy. How do you solve a particular problem? So I acknowledge the point that you make, and that is indeed why just knowing the formula doesn't mean you know how to bake the cake, but it is a big step. And a lot of, uh, a lot of companies have lost valuable IP this way, and they're watching the goods coming, what they thought was their special sauce being sold by somebody else. It, it's a significant issue. So gentleman with the white shirt, come down over this side. Hello, good evening. Uh, my name's John Algar. I'm an analyst at a London-based private louder, please. fund. Um, you notice the strategic shift of espionage in the digital age from purely political military to economic. Now, it strikes that many of the privately owned systems which lay vulnerable are inherently global in nature. The supply chain, stock exchange you mentioned, credit card transactional services. And I suppose, for example, many European listed equity derivatives are traded on exchanges physically located in the US. The interdependent nature of the global economy is such that the sound operational effectiveness of US exchanges um, necessitates the stability of the economy on this side of the Atlantic and, of course, our confidence in the financial system. So perhaps you could comment on how the globalized nature of the threats is captured in the evolution of the debate around governance. Um, this problem can't be solved exclusively in national terms. Just take crime, for example. Um, without really robust multilateral and bilateral, lots of bilateral agreements, we can't deal with this problem. You have, you know, we, we can, given enough time and resources, usually tell where a particular attack or problem is coming from. But if it's coming from a country that doesn't have any cyber criminal laws or doesn't enforce them, we can't do anything about that. So think about how long it took us to begin to get national agreements to deal with nuclear weapons. I mean, it was decades before we got the couple of decades before we got the first one and, and, even, and longer before we got even more meaningful ones. It's going to take a long time in this area, too. Um, the problem's different in nuclear deterrence than it is here. But I don't think the prospect, let me say this, I'm, I, I think I understand your question. It cannot be solved nationally. It's going to take the cooperation of a number of nations to deal with it. At the same time, I'm not sanguine about big treaties anytime soon. One reason I'm not sanguine about big treaties anytime soon is that we have issues here not only of crime, but also of freedom of information flows. And the Russians, the Chinese, the Zimbabweans, the usual bellwethers of personal liberty, really don't want, want to see a treaty that would control information flows and define as information aggression the movement of information across national borders 
that they think might destabilize their country. That debate is now going on in the UN. It's going to come to a head again this year, this summer, I think in July, maybe August. Um, and it's going to have to do with, you know, ICANN versus the ITU and things like that. I don't think anything's likely to happen this year or anytime soon. But I'm, I see the, the need for much more robust bilateral and multilateral, but I don't, I don't see any big convention coming out anytime soon. I'm, I'm not sure I've answered your question adequately, but that's how I understood it. Do you want to follow up that? I think there's so many more okay. questions, Joel, if it's okay. If you can keep your question short and snappy, that would be great. To the gentleman to your right afterwards and the guy in blue and then into the middle. Two, two quick ones. You touched on the uh, decentralized nature of the U.S. national grid. And I was just wondering, does that hold potentially some of the answers to how you could make a system more defensible? Um, the fact that Seattle or San Diego can go down, but not the whole system, you know, entirely can go down. And then the second thing is, you know, I'm an American PhD student here at the LSE, and um, you know, it sounds like the United States is in the position of being the, you know, kind of just trying to build the better mousetrap why people kind of come and steal and. And as you just mentioned, there's not really a lot of incentive for other parties like China to come to the table and negotiate multinational agreements. So what will the American public accept in terms of not going on the offensive and just kind of playing a def defensive strategy of just trying to build a better mousetrap? Well, remember, I've, I've talked both about the importance of companies doing better security, but I've also said we're in a glass house and that we can't really fundamentally change that. So here's my strategic take on it, and then I'll get to a finer answer. The, the speed, not security, is going to increasingly be the coin of the realm. Just as in markets, first to market is really important, sometimes more important than, than patents, this, this is the kind of trade-off that one is now seeing actively in, in company space. If, you know, if you tell a commander, a battlefield commander, that his network's penetrated, and he'll say, you know, if my decision cycle is shorter than my enemies, I don't care. That means, in plain English, if I can put a weapon on the guy who's stolen my information before he knows how to act on it, I don't really care that he's, he's died smart, right? And similarly, in, in, a, um, in a commercial sense, if I can penetrate the market before somebody who's stolen my information can penetrate the market, and by the time he's come out, he's copied me, come out with a, a newer iPad or whatever it is, a newer widget, I don't care. So that, that is a big aspect of, of what's going on right now. I, you know, the, it's election time in the United States. We're going to hear a lot of jingoistic uh, table pounding. There was a piece in the New York Times about that this morning. Um, but nobody's, nobody's going to go to war over this, over espionage, if that's what you mean. Yeah. Yes, um, thank you very much. I'm a former intelligence analyst with the UK Customs Service, so I did have to have a right, well, you're the right guys smile holding my about, books. Yeah, yeah. about yeah. the news on the book. Thanks um, a lot. 
I'm, I might add that um, there are certain things that have gone on in the past there, and I hope they're not going on anymore, uh, which certainly do require the attention of an external inspector general. But um, my, my, comment, my question is based on your comment about how intelligence agencies, and I would suggest that extends to law enforcement agencies, are stretched in dealing with a lot of these things. It leads to the question of whether that is going to leave opportunities and therefore threats, depending on which side you're on, for conventional espionage. Because perhaps drawing on the comments of General Michael Flynn in ISAF, where he said we need less James Bond and more Sherlock Holmes, although he was talking about, I think, the specifics there. Um, is there a danger that there's going to be recruitment and an emphasis of a certain type of personality which leaves the old traditional um, political military espionage, which now extends also to economic and financial, to come to the fore again? Yes. Bribery, sex, and so on. Yes, the three Bs, as I used to say, that, that, that's burglary, bribery, and blackmail. Yeah. Um, yes is the answer. The short answer is just yes, yes, yes. And in this country, um, I know from talking to some of my former colleagues in, in counterintelligence, the counterterrorism problem has really sucked the air and the budget out of just about everything else. Yeah, we're seeing more recruitment. We're also seeing something, you know, the, the, these two kinds of intelligence overlap. They, not, they support each other and they, they overlap. Um, the... Uh, Let's take anonymous, for example. Who is anonymous? And why do we think it's just um, sort of uh, cyber anarchs? And if you were running another intelligence service, what would you do with anonymous as a cover? Interesting question. So anyway, I'm being Talmudic. I'm answering questions with questions, but that's, you know, that's life. Okay. Uh, my name is Amir Paiva from BBC Persian, but I'm uh, asking this question in my personal capacity as an alum. Uh, you talked in length about China and its capability, but very briefly touched upon Iran. Um, I would like to, if, I would like you to expand a little bit, uh, if if uh, if possible, especially if you know about the Iran cyber army. I mean, at least they have been stealing some. Google uh, security uh, certi certificates and Google CEO said they are they, they consider Iran's cyber army as a threat. But you said, I mean, my impression, my my uh, understanding was you said their capabilities are very narrow, which was very relieving for me because some of my colleagues' computers are being constantly, apparently, allegedly being hacked by them. Um, why do you think their capabilities are very narrow? Uh, do you? Think it's a lot of a lot of it is just a hype in the media. Uh, is it this now now how uh, domestic or are they using Chinese to to do what whatever they do? Yeah, thanks for uh, sort of calling me down on that or giving me an opportunity to unpack that a little bit. Um, I was talking about their um, what they seem to be after in, in the United States in terms of technology. They're also surely interested in er ethnic Iranians and Iranian citizens around the world, and, and they 
spy on them uh, for political reasons. Uh, and you're right to bring our attention back to the operation in the Netherlands a few months ago where all those um, certificates were through which they were stolen that did seem to be an Iranian operation. Um, they, I, I, I just don't, well, in 2009 when I issued a the predecessor report on economic espionage in the United States, I um, wasn't able to go as far as my successor went in pointing fingers at particular nations. But what I did was to deal with that, put an appendix at the end of the report that simply listed the cases we'd prosecuted. And Iran and China were neck and neck. Um, so I don't mean to downplay the Iranian capabilities, especially if you or your colleagues are likely to be in their crosshairs. I'm simply looking at the whole picture and saying this is not on the scale that we're seeing from um, Russia or China in particular. Dr. Brenner, I run a small business here in London and you've sold me. I need to launch cyber attacks on my commercial rivals starting tomorrow. Where am I going to find people to do this for me? <laughs> oh, if you're going to be in that business, you should be able to figure that one out. <laughs> There's a lot of that going on, by the way. There's a lot of just plain old... You know, when things are easy to steal, you will, you will turn more people into thieves. There's a wonderful proverb I learned in... in Pakistan many, many years ago that maybe a sin to tempt a, to th a sin to steal, but it's a sin to tempt a thief. And our networks tempt thieves. So we're seeing a lot of commercial espionage. So just before we bring in this young man, can I, can I just press you on something that I think you said earlier on? Yeah. You said, we, the U.S., don't do it. And you were referring, I think, specifically to uh, the U.S. security services Yep. poaching commercial secrets from yep. China. Yep. What about from Western Europe and Japan, and if not, why not? You mean, do Western Europe and Japan do it? No, do, does the U.S. ever try and... No. Why not? <laughs> Same reasons. You're saying that Western Europe and Japan don't have commercial secrets worth... No, 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 no. Just the IPR regime? No, it is, really. You know, it's, uh, the IP regime and, and also just the capabilities. Um, this would really introduce enormous stress into relationships that are very important and uh, we don't do it. Young man. Yeah, I just wanted to ask a quick uh, question about the attribution problem. Pick a hand up so I can see <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. uh -huh. um, yeah, I just want to ask a quick uh, question about the attribution problem. Yeah. Um, do you think that given the problems with, with knowing who has hit you, um, do you think it's really possible that the US or any other country would be able to launch a kinetic response against a cyber attack in the foreseeable future? Yes. Here's why. Uh, the a attribution is, 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 is one of the real brass rings here. You're right to bring us back to that. Given enough time and enough resources, we can usually solve that problem. We can't solve it real quickly. But um, we, we, you know, our, our, our capabilities are, are, are are good enough and and the potential attacker has to take into account 
that we might be able to. And so this uncertainty has its own deterrent effect. We haven't talked much about deterrence and why it's different from the nuclear stuff, but this is, this is why it's different. You know, we, missiles come with return addresses. We know where they come from. Cyber attacks come without return addresses, and figuring out where they come from, as this gentleman has said, is often a real trick. Sometimes we, we don't do it, but the attacker has to assume we probably could and doesn't know also what kind of human penetration we might have. Um, and the, um, the, the risks are enormous. I mean, you'd have to ask what sort of attack would call forth a, a kinetic attack. And I don't want to start speculating about that now. I, 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 not only because I can't speak for my government, but because I, I, I think one doesn't know. And, and the, um, what sort of attack would be bad enough so that no prime minister or no American president could fail to respond in a warlike manner. I mean, you can imagine those scenarios. Um, very difficult problem. Anyway, I don't think we're going to see, as I said, you know, standalone cyber war. But there's going to be no conflict in the future that doesn't involve this kind of operation. Can I go to the very last question? Uh, hi, um, I'm a student here, and I just wanted to ask for your views on WikiLeaks. Is it, is it about WikiLeaks? Yeah, is it if it's crime or if it's uh -huh. how it's affecting foreign policy and so on? Well, you know, that's a um, there, I, there are lots of aspects of, of of WikiLeaks we could talk about. Um, I don't know anybody who takes the position that nothing that WikiLeaks has leaked. Um, shouldn't have been leaked. The, but there's several problems with what's going on. One is that you put into the hands of a person or group the right to determine for other people in a functioning democratic republic, imperfectly functioning to be sure, but functioning democratic republic that makes rules, that makes laws, and you put into the hands of somebody else the determination of which of those laws in this realm are going to be observed and which not. This kind of, even if in a particular case you really like what you learned and think it should have come out, Allow this kind of group seriously undermines democratic governments as well as undemocratic governments. So that's one issue about WikiLeaks. Um, the, the you know you could be asking about why we don't take it down, but probably everybody here understands why that was extremely, extremely, extremely difficult to take down. I, um, you know, WikiLeaks. Is or Assange in particular um, has a has has put information out that really has endangered lives. He likes to say nobody can point to anybody who's been hurt or killed, but we can point to opposition figures in Zimbabwe who've had to leave the country. Uh, we can point to um, we know that in Afghanistan the Taliban has put together a commission to comb through this stuff to see who was playing with the Americans. 
I don't know, and neither does Julian Assange, whose throats have been cut as a result of that. Um, so, you know, I, it's very troublesome, and it troubles me in particular because of the arrogation of the power to determine what should, what should be known and what not be known. Now, there's another aspect of this. Let me talk specifically about the Private Manning episode. And I'll, I'll acknowledge that Private Manning is about to go on trial. Um, and so I'm not going to say he's guilty. All I'll say is it, it, it appears that um, we're probably putting the right guy on trial. Let me just leave it at that. What did this man, what, why did he have, first place, why was he there? He's unstable. Uh, there are a lot of, and why did he have access to information about the Icelandic economy or private conversations between the American ambassador and the king of Saudi Arabia and any one of a number of subjects that had utterly nothing to do with his job? And the answer is because the American State Department was really irresponsible, in my view, by dumping all this stuff into a network called CIPRNET. That's the, it's the secret though not top secret military network that basically is what the, mil the American military and, and our allies now increasingly used to communicate. And it was the abandonment of the principle of role-based access to information. This was really silly. I kind of enjoy it when businessmen come up to me and say, yeah, the army must have been dumb. And I said, no, number one, it wasn't the army that was dumb. It wasn't the American army. It was the American State Department that was dumb. And secondly, why does everybody, why does the guy in your mailroom have access to everything on your server? And then I watch him go white. Because <laughs> it's the same thing. What, we're, what we saw in that case was the abandonment of the need-to-know principle, which was really... Um, a nasty phrase after 9-11 when, when it was information sharing that was like, you know, this is kindergarten or something um, and we have to share everything and if people shared stuff like five-year-olds and you can use mind but you can play with it too kind of thing. I mean, this is a really strange kind of rhetoric. The separating rhetorically and operationally and organizationally the duty to protect information from the duty to put it where it needs to go was a disaster. And WikiLeaks was an example of that disaster. I was predicting this from early 2007. Not this particular incident. I don't know who Private Manning was. But this was going to happen. And, um, and I used to shake my head with colleagues. This is, nobody's going to understand this until something like this happens. And that's, that's what happened. So part of what happened with that that wasn't, you know, I don't blame WikiLeaks. That wasn't anything particularly technologically advanced. It was just, uh, I thought, an outrageously irresponsible thing to do. But it is, we are going to see, by the way, much more role-based access to information in the private sector than we used to see. We used to see it only in the military and intelligence services. You know, we tag people and we tag information. You tag the information, it's secret, it's top secret, it's confidential, it's not classified. And then you, you, we tag people with access rights to this. And that's, again, it's imperfect, but it's an intelligent way to think about it. 
Typically in the private sector, this hasn't been the case, except in a few instances, for example, in the M&A world, where you have to keep the trading desk and the M&A guys totally separate so that the trading desk can't trade on, on, on um, insider information. And, and quarterly results are closely held and things like that. But it's not been the, role, the rule in the private sector that we, dis, that we tag information to people as to who gets access to what. That's changing. It's going to change more. Well, we, we've reached uh, 8 o'clock, everybody. Just before I thank Joel on everybody's behalf, let me first of all thank the LSE events team, as usual, for doing a splendid job putting on tonight's talk. Secondly, to remind you that if you do want to buy copies of Joel's book, which is an excellent book, uh, you can place uh, an order outside with the publisher, and then Joel's signed labels will go into them in due course. It's not his fault, it's not LSE's fault, but the books aren't. Here, unfortunately, that seems to be down to the publisher and, and the UK gentleman customs. from HM Customs <laughs> is going to go <laughs> talk to his former colleagues and make sure you actually get it. Thanks right. all for coming out tonight. I have some very good questions, but most of all, thanks to Joel for such a candid and engaging talk. Thanks very much. Thanks.